0: From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with critic and author Ethan Warren about how our current cultural moment is filtering through our entertainment.
1: Uh, I need to feel hope because I don't have a choice, and it is hard sometimes, and I do look to media, which uh, I also have a theory about tearjerkers. I often go back to my favorite tearjerkers because I think that they, they provide a sense of hope. Media can show us sort of the journey through the darkness and the journey out the other side. First Reformed does not take us out the other side. (laughs) Joe Parra Talks With You does, I believe, um, to really bring it all back around. And and the media that most impacts me uh, says, look at this. This is how bad it can get. And this is maybe how you're going to find your way through.
0: We talk about Joe Parra Talks With You, First Reformed, and Warren's upcoming book, The Cinema of Paul Thomas Anderson, American Apocrypha. Stay tuned for that conversation after this break. Riverside Chats is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep this podcast going strong, bringing you the unique perspectives, personalities, and topics you love. Click the listener support link in the podcast notes for this episode to learn more. Welcome to Backrow Center, a podcast from FilmStreams, an art house organization in Omaha, Nebraska. I'm Film Streams Communications Director Patrick Kinney and I'm joined by Dana Ryan,
1: Film Streams Development Manager, and Diana Martinez, Film Streams Artistic Director. Dana, will you tell us more about what to expect from Backrow Center?
2: Every month the three of us will come together to talk about what's happening at Film Streams and in the larger film world. Our theaters are places where we use film to put different art forms in conversation with each other and springboard important discussions about identity, politics, and art with moviegoers of all ages. We're excited to bring these conversations to you in a brand new format and hopefully have some fun in the process. As many of you may know, we've been going nonstop since our closure in March due to coronavirus. From our slate of virtual events and Q&As to weekly new releases available on our site, we're excited for a more personal way to bring you all in closer to the heart of our organization by hearing straight from the people behind the scenes. You'll get to know the three of us, as well as the rest of the Film Streams crew, as this podcast develops.
0: Even though we're closed, we still believe in the power of film as a collective, communal experience. So subscribe to the podcast through whichever platform you listen, and we encourage you to tell us your thoughts about
1: future topics, the films we talk about, and stuff we need to watch through our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We're at Film Streams everywhere.
2: Until next time, we'll see you in the best seats in the house, back row center.
0: Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Today I'm talking with Ethan Warren, film critic and editor for the online film journal Bright Wall, Dark Room. Warren is currently working on a book called The Cinema of Paul Thomas Anderson, American Apocrypha, which we talk about along with his 2018 article, I Can Whistle With That, what the stories of 2018 show us about responding to despair, which tries to grapple with our current moment of anxiety and apocalypse and the ways that that seeps into our cultural entertainment. Here is our conversation. Your article was, I Can Whistle With That, What the Stories of 2018 Can Tell Us About Responding to Despair. And I mean, I guess I I found the article this year and I thought, wow, he's really captured not only how 2018 felt, but how now feels. So I guess we'll start with just this idea that do you feel like despair uh, in our media or maybe even in our culture? Was there something unique about 2018 and has it has it dissipated? Are we moving along in a healthy way from there?
1: Well, the question of whether we're moving along in a healthy way from 2018 uh, is is a very big one. <laughs> um, I do think it's, it's interesting to kind of take the temperature of every year. And so despair uh, was kind of what I detected in 2018 among the whole sort of tapestry of, uh, you know, the whole great emotional tapestry that a year contains, I tend to feel like some things sort of bubble to the surface. And in 2018, especially with First Reformed, which was a movie that was really buzzy that year, I felt like I was detecting this this rising sense that we might have passed some kind of tipping point. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really jumping into the deep end here, but that is what the essay concerns is some of the things that are brought up in, in the movie First Reformed, uh, directed by Paul Schrader. We can get into that a little bit if you'd like. Um, are, are really looking pretty head on at uh, climate change and and uh, predicting some of the stuff that we have actually seen come true in the last couple of years. Um, the movie is prescient in that way. So I certainly still see despair in, in the media of this year, but I think it's it's more interesting to kind of to try and detect different things. And so uh, in the media of, of 2021, I, I saw um, some other elements that uh, we can get into. A little bit as well So you, you tell me where you want to head first
0: <laughs> Well, okay, how about Let's let's start with 2018 And then move from there Just chronologically I mean, so you you call uh, First Reformed in your article You say it is, I think The most important movie of the decade uh, So let, let's start with just a primer What what was it about First Reformed That you found so important And what made, you know Why did it make such a big impact on you?
1: Well, uh, so just for anybody Who, who hasn't seen it um First Reformed is a movie uh, written and directed by Paul Schrader, who is well-known for having written Taxi Driver um, and some other uh, collaborations with Martin Scorsese um, and has also uh, written and directed a lot of great stuff himself, uh, including The Card Counter from this year with Oscar Isaac. Uh, But First Reformed is a movie about Ethan Hawke uh, playing a, I believe, priest uh, or minister, I can't remember the, the denomination of uh, the church in that film, but um, one of his parishioners uh, confronts him with, you know, the sort of rough, hard data on, on climate science that uh, a lot of people are reluctant to look straight at, and a lot of politicians and people who could do the hard work to push us in the direction are reluctant to look straight at, and the movie shoots really straight with you. And the movie has a very, very bleak trajectory as, as Ethan Hawke's character really spirals into um, in, into really the starkest the levels of despair. If you've seen Taxi Driver, you know how dark uh, Schrader can get with that kind of thing and, and the card counter as well. So what that movie, as I said in the article, is I think so important because it doesn't talk around it. It just devotes 10 minutes to saying, this is what you need to hear and this is what is probably going to happen in the next few years. And and disease is one of the, the things he brings up. There's there's a line like, uh, I feel like we should put a content warning, frankly, on this uh, this episode because uh, the line of, of his that, or the, the character in the film, The Parishioner, uh, the line that has hung with me so significantly is, is essentially the social structure can't bear the stress of multiple crises at once. And that is really kind of what we've seen um, across in the last year or two is is you know crisis on top of crisis and uh it is it is lovely to meet you start our conversation off with something <laughs> so dark, um, and I'm, I'm sorry for that, uh, but it is no, it's fascinating stuff, I think.
0: I think it's good because we, we're, we're slowly going to build toward Joe Para and Licorice Pizza and all these happier things, so you oh, know, yes, we'll start yes. down. Thank yeah, it's like it's like Dante's Inferno. We'll end up in paradise eventually. Just give us some oh, time.
1: Yes, of course, and Licorice Pizza is, is paradise. Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> well, so, yeah, I, I love First Reformed. I think it's a masterpiece. Uh, uh, it doesn't make me feel good. It doesn't make me, you know, happy for, you know, like a week after I see it, I'm probably just overwhelmed by it. I think that the sign that Ethan Hawke's character puts on the church, uh, will God forgive us, is one of the most haunting things that I – you know, it's – I love that he's able to try to find uh, a religious way to go about talking about climate change because I think the stereotype right now is that there's an alignment between the the – forces of the political right and religious people to sort of ignore climate change or to feel like it's not something that they should care about. And the movie even kind of gets into that. But it's one of those things where I think our culture is trying to find ways to deal with that in media and in entertainment. And I think that's what I love about your article, because it's tough to call a movie like First Reformed entertaining. And so it's trying to sort of find the language for like what is it about movies that are able to confront these really difficult uh, concepts, these difficult feelings we have, whether it's despair or anger or whatever it might be. I, you know, like how do those work? How do we react to that? How do we respond to our cultural moment? Are all really fascinating questions to me. And so, I mean, I don't know. From first reformed, you make this connection in the article to uh, terror management theory, which is the idea that humans are the only species blessed with self-awareness, which means that we're the only species forced to hold two thoughts in our heads simultaneously. That we're programmed to fight tooth and nail for survival, but that in the long run, each and every one of us will fail. Uh, So, I mean, how how did you come into terror management theory as a way of finding language for what's going on in our our cultural
1: moment in media? Uh, Well, I was a psychology major in college uh, and my thesis was on terror management theory, uh, which is is this psychological concept, which basically suggests uh, a lot of it. It comes from this book called The Worm at the Core. It's this great book uh, that basically suggests that our awareness of our own mortality uh, and, and the fact that each and every one of us, barring some great scientific advancements, uh, will die, that is the worm at the core of our lives. Um, you know, if, if life is this lovely apple, there is this worm that can burst out at inconvenient times and cause great waves of despair. And so what this theory suggests is that all of our uh, sort of daily, systems, you know, from waking up and brushing your teeth in the morning to treating your family well, to, you know, participating in society. All of these are just the building blocks of a structure that will keep the despair at bay and will give us a sense of meaning in our lives. If I get up in the morning, brush my teeth, treat my family well, and don't cut someone off, don't cut someone off on the highway, uh, then I have created a system of meaning for myself, in this case, largely based around virtue, it sounds like, um, that will eat me from remembering that all of this will end in a moment of annihilation that that none of us can quite predict the outcome of, uh, which is if you stop to really think about it, as I will endeavor not to do uh, on this show right now, is, is, you know, a, a pretty, Mind-bending thing to to think about, and so what I see, and and as I know we're going to get into, is is this uh, series Joe Parra talks with you. I think is is really in conversation with First Reformed uh, as a series that that literally depicts uh, the as I say scaffolding that I think uh, terror management theory, uh, you know, the theory of of how we manage our terror just uh, by you know making the perfect egg sandwich basically um, can be enough to, to give a sense of meaning to your life and uh, and, and keep you from going the route of, uh, of the first reform protagonist.
0: Well, it's funny because I, I, I get that and I love that I've been trying to find language for what it is about Joe Para that I found so so profoundly affecting every time I watch it. But then there's this other element where when we talk about it in these terms, I don't know that if I'm listening to this radio show and I haven't heard of Joe Para, that I'd have any idea that it's just this sort of like nice, simple, I think you Call it a Mister Rogers riff, right? It sounds like it's going to be this really heady, intellectual, heavy show, and it you know it flirts with elements like that. But for the most part, it's sort of light, pleasant, and and uh, you know silly even. So I, I guess how, how what was it that allowed you to make that connection between something that's maybe one of the most heavy movies that was out in twenty eighteen and Joe Parra this pleasant Adult Swim show?
1: Well, uh, yeah. So Joe Parra talks with you uh, is is. I, you know, they're in their third season right now, and so I'm, I'm re-immersed in it, and I, I am prone to saying it's the best show on TV because I I find something very uh, profound and almost spiritual in what, as you say, is on the outside um, kind of presented as, as almost Bill Nye the Science Guy for Grown Ups or, or Mr. Wizard or uh, or Mr. Rogers for Grown Ups, um, where your protagonist uh, is Joe Perra, who is... Uh, a self described in in real life is a uh, New York based comedian, but in this series is playing a version of himself as quote, a soft handed choir teacher from uh, the upper peninsula of Michigan. And he has a relationship with the camera uh, where he will educate us on a different topic, every episode, like teaching us about the rich history of uh, uh, iron mining in uh, in Michigan or uh, teaching you how to dance at a wedding. And, and these will all be entry points to uh, a world that the series has built out over the course of a few seasons that I would say is, is kind of our, our live action Springfield uh, at this point. It's, it's they've, they've built this really uh, lovely ensemble sort of bit by bit. And by the time you get to the end of the season, uh, Joe has uh, sort of developed a flirtation with uh, another teacher named Sarah uh, who is played by the uh, fantastic Joe Firestone? They have their lovely flirtation across the season, and then she confronts him in the final episode, uh, losing her temper over the fact that he is so interested in I, I think she says ding dongs and bing bongs and ping pongs, when there are these horrible crises in the world and our social system is undergoing these stresses. And very much the same kind of thing that that the character Michael is talking about in, in First Reformed, and so. You basically have the first reformed dilemma being thrust into uh, this Adult Swim show. It, it really they play their cards very close to the to the chest. Then the, the final moments of the season, and then increasingly over the past couple of seasons, this concept has overtaken the show. Uh, is is this? this conversation between the two characters, one of whom is focused on life's small pleasures and the other of whom we realize his love interest is a doomsday prepper with a uh, fortified basement where they then end up spending a good deal of time. And so it's this it's this rhetorical debate that they are putting up before us every couple of, uh, you know, a couple of episodes of time uh, on Adult Swim. And I emailed Joe Pera about all this, <laughs> After the end of the season thing, I I found all this so affecting and he responded and said, that's that's great to hear. It is just a comedy show. Uh, and to which I say, Joe, whether you like it or not, you've created something very profound. Uh, and and I do think it is, like I say, the, the comedy answer to First reform.
0: If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Ethan Warren, film critic and author about how our current cultural moment of despair and anxiety and apocalypse is seeping into our entertainment. Join the conversation on social media using hashtag #RiversideChats. I know he kind of tries to walk the line of being the character that he's created and uh, and being this person who's must he, like he must know what he's doing, right? Do you do you buy that? It's sort of like he's just trying to make people laugh and has stumbled into
1: consistent profundity. You know, he he's a fascinating figure, and and I'm I'm very attracted to figures like this who who have kind of a modern Andy Kaufman vibe,
0: mm-hmm.
1: or Andy Kaufman, the the comedian from. Uh, I think the 70s uh, were, were his sort of big era uh, before he died much too young, uh, who would go on talk shows and and kind of play the highest possible level of mind games with the hosts. Um, and you just were never sure if he was joking because he was always joking, which kind of meant he was never joking. And this whole feedback loop uh, as the snake eats its tail of reality and this guy breaks your mind. I think there's some element of that too. to to how Joe Parra presents himself on like Seth Meyers show. He's a frequent guest. And I think that he seems like he, he probably is a genuinely sort of introverted and a little bit awkward guy who has figured out how to like all the great sort of comic performers has figured out how to inflate his own, um, characteristics into a way that he can sort of create this, this semi cartoonish character who he can also play off stage. Um, I, I rewatched recently his uh, stand-up comedy, which which went sort of semi-viral before the series began. And it's it's a very awkward fit because uh, he is not somebody with a a traditionally comic voice and a traditional relationship to sort of jokes and punchlines, uh, it's much more conceptual. And it went viral basically because people were saying, is this a guy okay and what's going on? <laughs> um, and this, the series has let us know what's going on a little bit greater with his perspective. Well,
0: so I mean, when when the show is going on, it's I, I know they have a there's a punchline in the latest season that says I guess they're still in 2018 and the economy's great and everything's you know <laughs> everything's no reason to yeah. be uh, uh, you know scared about the future necessarily at least in terms of they don't know the pandemic's coming et cetera. Uh, but I don't know. It's interesting to see how the show developed from season one to season two in particular, where, I don't know, to me, it, I don't know that it feels like it's so actively concerned with, I guess, the the specific conflict that Sarah brings uh, about the future. But season two does... It funnels a lot of anxieties, and it seems to really dwell in this space of all the characters are going through fairly uh, heavy emotional issues, even though each of the episodes is not especially heavy until you get toward the end with – but even then, like toward the end, it's with like uh, he he's doing a he decides to do a rat race like the movie Rat Race uh, where he puts I think like one hundred and fifty dollars in a locker and has all his friends go race to go get it. And in this episode, he learns that his grandmother has passed away. And there's just this this juggling that they do of heavy tragedy with something that's so innocent and silly that just works so well. And I just find it so moving almost every episode. Uh, so I mean, like when when you're seeing how despair maybe was the perfect word for 2018 and those types of anxieties and feelings as the show even though in the world of the show it's still 2018 as the world itself has moved forward do you think tw- does the second season and the third season reflect something different like a different sort of cultural feeling beyond despair
1: well the second season uh, is is very much about um, the sort of cyclical nature of life and uh it, it the, the sort of uniting symbol of the season is uh, a bean arch uh, where Joe is growing green beans. Uh, it, it takes place over the course of the summer vacation. So already it's a bit of a closed loop. Um, the first thing you see in the season is uh, somebody putting their screens in. And the last thing you see is them taking their screens back out for the end of the season. Um and Joe is is talking very much about his memories of his grandfather, who was also named Joe Pera. And it's it's all building on these concepts of, of, that we can find comfort in life's cyclical nature. And then there is this, this sort of the breach in that, which is uh, Joe's grandmother dies. She's the beloved uh, figure of his in the series. He has no other family that we see. Um, and it's this question of can can life's cyclical nature ground us when we are confronted by a, a great event of grief? And I don't see that season as necessarily in conversation with anything that was kind of in the air culturally at the time. Uh, season three, as you mentioned, is very pointedly still taking place in 2018. They are, they are joking about it uh, by reminding us consistently. Um, and I think that's partially because A, they're trying to keep it compressed because we are very much still in the the uh, sort of storyline of Joe dealing with his grandmother's death, but also given the character that they've built out for Sarah, who basically is, is uh, devastated by the overlapping stresses of the world. We could not possibly throw her <laughs> into 2020, 2021 and kind of, you know, expect the series to maintain any kind of equilibrium. Um, pardon me. The, uh, I guess Joe, Joe uh, Pera contributed a little uh, mini script to Vulture uh, New York Magazine last year where creators were asked to send in what their uh, characters would be doing during the first days of the pandemic. And we learned that Joe and Sarah are indeed just sitting in her fortified basement. and, And I would guess very likely still are two years later based on the character we've seen. So there's not a lot of narrative juice in that. So they are keeping us in 2018.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. So uh, I guess as as you see things changing then, let's start to think about what what is it that you feel would be the word for whatever cultural moment we're in now, if not despair? Where, where are we? How, how has things evolved?
1: So I was thinking about this, and I, I, I tried to look towards um, the last couple of best picture winners which are Parasite, uh, directed by Bong Joon-ho, and uh, Nomadland, uh, directed by Chloe Zhao. And Parasite is a movie uh, that I think is motivated by a great anger, and Nomadland is a movie that's motivated by a great yearning. Those are two movies that are a couple of years old at this point, but I think they point at least me in the direction of, of what I detect right now, which is at least among sort of you know, my bubble for lack of a better term as uh, sort of a loaded word over the last few years but we each, we each live in a bubble of some kind and, and in mine there is, there is a pretty consistent uh, and somewhat formless anger and a pretty consistent and somewhat formless yearning for maybe something better that we didn't even know we had in February, 2020 maybe for sort of a future that we thought there was going to be uh, that is now gonna be fundamentally different and, and it's that anger and that yearning kind of crashing against each other. Um, and it's it's a little bit, um, you know, a little bit at odds, a little bit interwoven uh, in a way that I, I do think you can detect in some of this year's uh, media. But it, it's certainly not the same uh, cocktail in our media that there was uh, in 2018.
0: Well, so, OK, so a formless anger for Parasite, I see it. Uh, Nomadland, I don't know that I saw that as an angry movie necessarily I mean certainly yearning there, right Do you see anger in Nomadland?
1: Well, I think it's, I was trying to create a little bit of a dichotomy and and maybe I didn't do it quite clearly, uh, as as clearly as I would have liked to, but um, I think there is a lot of yearning and a little anger in Nomadland and a lot of anger and a little yearning in Parasite and maybe, you know, between the two of them they balance each other out
0: and then this year we're entering kind of another time where it seemed like a month ago everyone decided Belfast was going to win all the awards, and now I don't I don't know you know who knows it's early to speculate any of that, but as far as where we've come, I mean, it sounds like you've prepared some thoughts. So has. I mean, even Nomadland feels like a relic of the pre-pandemic world and whatever media we were making then versus now, where there was kind of a year where nobody, you know, a couple people were making things, but a lot of people weren't really sure what was happening. They weren't sure when we'd be able to start making things. And now just, you know, things are starting to come out, but it's still kind of this uncertain future. So, I mean, post-pandemic, do you see, I mean, are we in a new space
1: entirely? Well, we're certainly in a new space in that we are we are on the other side of a great schism. Uh, you know, uh, there was a breach in in Hollywood operations for at the very least a few months, and there will be an asterisk next to so much media that is is starting to come out now, like Licorice Pizza, the new film by Paul Thomas Anderson, very much a pandemic film um, that that will always be his pandemic film to some extent, uh, and and you can see it. I think it provoked some really incredible things in the production. I think you can detect the circumstances of that production um, in a lovely way. A lot of the stuff that came out this year was was made before uh, everything was shut down by COVID. We were getting things like Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch, um, you know, has, was held for a year. Uh, the Mitchells versus the Machines, uh, intended to be a theatrical release, was put onto Netflix. Uh, because of the pandemic, uh, two movies that I do think sort of carry some charge of what this year is about, even if they were made beforehand. If you want to talk about one thing, though, that is is uh, sort of mid-pandemic art, uh, Bo Burnham's Inside, uh, which also debuted on Netflix earlier this year, uh, has has certainly been labeled by a lot of people as sort of the defining work of the pandemic so far, uh, and is certainly very angry and very yearning.
0: Yeah, I, I see that. And I'm thinking of your other examples here. So the French dispatch is framed around the funeral and subsequent uh, closure of a New Yorker-like magazine uh, run out of France. And so it's sort of like this uh, elegy for a world that is ending of a time where, I don't know, maybe that kind of media was even celebrated in the way that I don't know what it is now. So, I mean, do, do you see that in the, the the framing itself of the funeral, the, the mourning in some ways, as well as to some degree a celebration? Is that is that sort of does that capture our moment because we're all feeling like things are over that things we maybe took for granted are not going to come back and we have to sort of adjust to that
1: i think that's that's absolutely it and i think wes anderson's uh prior live action movie uh grand budapest hotel uh and the french dispatch are both uh movies that are very much concerned with that tipping point between two ways of life and so the french dispatch is set against the backdrop in some uh, cases uh, of the uh, Paris student uprisings of the 60s and and the great social unrest of the 60s. And you're getting that collision of the Wes Anderson whimsy and the really tough social realities of, uh, you know, the shift between the 60s and the 70s. And I think what you see in that movie and Grand Budapest Hotel is this interest that Anderson has in characters who are trying to uphold some level of decorum and some belief that life can have uh, some you know, decency at a bare minimum and perhaps something even more uh, when we are seeing our culture sort of ravaged by barbarians, uh, to speak in these sort of highfalutin terms that I'm sure Wes Anderson would appreciate. Uh, and so yeah, the, the funeral framing uh, I found very emotionally impactful as uh, an editor. Um, I, I work as an editor for an independent journal called Bright Wall, Dark Room, uh, where this article that we've been talking about uh, was first published and the sort of elegy for an editor and how <laughs> that character is both sort of mourned and treated as subhuman human, uh, you know, just, just human waste that nobody needed in the first place. Uh, I found very emotionally affecting.
0: Yeah, it's it's been interesting watching Wes Anderson develop over the years because it, it seems like in his early movies he was more uh, emotionally invested in the the barbarians who maybe didn't want to be barbarians, right? I'm thinking like Max Fisher is not. I mean, he's much more of a barbarian. Uh, Herman Bloom, Steve Zissou, like they they're they're kind of the people on the outside of that. Uh, I don't know whatever that class of people holding things together. they they're, he's gone sort of from following chaotic characters to more orderly characters. And, I mean, you certainly see in his in his in just his style, there's that sort of uh, juxtaposition of very intentional framing, very intentional everything, right, mixed with some degree of chaos that he throws in there often for humor. Uh, but, I mean, I don't know. Do you, do you, is he somebody who – do you think that – is this a new development since Grand Budapest uh, of him that now? Is he reacting to the world itself and the changes that happened from when he started in the 90s to now to become the kind of artist interested in the themes that he's exploring in these last few movies?
1: Uh, this is such a good question and such a good point that I almost feel like I need to tread lightly because I could fall into the rabbit hole of everything <laughs> you just suggested. Uh, I think that's a fantastic point. I think he uh, is somebody who has, since he emerged in the 90s uh, and and really up to, I guess I would say, Moonrise Kingdom is is a director who was concerned with sort of the collision of the, the animalistic and the sort of more decorous uh, sides of uh, a, a character. Uh, and I think that comes to a real head in Fantastic Mr. Fox, which is quite literally about an animal who is trying to negotiate between his human and his sort of beastly selves. And that tension is present in I think every protagonist, uh, pretty much in an Anderson movie, up to uh, this character of Sam, the young man in in Moonrise Kingdom, who is this juvenile delinquent, and then there really is this this switch. You're right; it's it's this switch over from the chaos is internal, and the outer world is a little more uh, sort of uh, in support of that. I, I like I said this this is such a it's such a juicy idea that I'm I'm spinning out already. Um, you'll have to forgive me. I think you made a great point right there.
0: Oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, if you write an article about it, send it over to me because I'd love you to make I, sense I of it. I absolutely
1: will. Yeah. <laughs> well, well I, I did to a certain extent. You can find an article of mine on uh, the fantastic Mr. Fox, uh, or I guess, is it just fantastic Mr. Fox at Brightwell Darkroom that, that does get into some of these ideas, which I, I think are, are are what really uh, draws me to his work in the first place. These these collisions of the the wild and the civilized. A lot of people seem to like either his
0: later work or his earlier work in this one. I don't, I don't have a great point or anything here. I'm just curious what your take is because I I grew up uh, liking his old his older stuff, his movies like uh, Tenenbaums and Life Aquatic and Rushmore to me are the, those are the ones I can always go back to that I get the most out of. And I, I appreciate the things that he's done since, but it's harder for me to emotionally connect. It sounds like you might be the opposite though. Is that right?
1: Uh, well, no, I, I, actually, I agree with you, uh, on what the highlights are. I think, uh, Royal Tenenbaums is, is his masterpiece. And I, if, if he makes a better movie than that, uh, you know, he'll, he'll really be the best that's, that's ever done it. Cause, <laughs> uh, it's that, that is, he, he has these, uh, tensions inside him as an artist, uh, where he has this, this interest in very precise formal control and very sort of broad cartoonish, um artistic design. And I think that's always most interesting when it is set against a real world backdrop. And so when he is constrained in some way, as I imagine he was by budget limitations on Rushmore and the Royal Tenenbaums, and as he forced on himself with Darjeeling Limited, uh, which is one of my favorites of his because he again drops his characters into situations in India that he can't control. That's that's where the exciting stuff is for me. And, and the more I think as he has shifted over in some cases to doing stop motion, fully conjuring his movies out of thin air, I think some of what excites me has been lost. Um, and, and for other people, something has been gained. There's people who think his, his most recent run is his best, as you say. And, and I'm, I'm more on your side. I think the 90s stuff is, is really where the good stuff is. <laughs> All right, cool. I feel, I feel
0: vindicated about that. I'm talking with Ethan Warren, author of the Bright Wall Dark Room article, I Can Whistle With That, What the Stories of 2018 Show Us About Responding to Despair, as well as the author of the upcoming book, The Cinema of Paul Thomas Anderson, American Apocrypha. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Stay tuned for the rest of the conversation after this break. This
2: is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. I'm Charity Nebbe. Book clubs are fun for a lot of reasons. They're an excuse to read something new, something you might not have picked up on your own. They are a great opportunity to visit with friends. But what if you could invite the smartest, most insightful people you can think of to have a candid conversation about a great book? That's what I get to do on the Talk of Iowa Book Club, and you're invited. He really was able to convey the message in a way that gets to your heartstrings. We can really see that he is a scientist, but he's also a person who loves what he is studying. He's a scholar and a humanist, and and I think that's his greatest achievement.
0: And then it's like, punch, punch, oh my gosh, what? So you have this like visceral, emotional connection to the poem, and it's because of the way he's linguistically playing with language.
2: Let's talk about sex, because, of course, in the original book, um... Sex- and I have always longed for someone to say that to both of us on the radio. <laughs> A dream come true. Yeah, All yeah. Right. thank you. All right. The Talk of Iowa Book Club podcast coming soon from Iowa Public Radio. It's time to start reading.
0: And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and I've been doing this show for a while now. Check out the backlog of Riverside Chats wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite app is. I'm talking with Ethan Warren, film critic and editor for the online film journal Bright Wall, Dark Room. Warren is currently working on a book called The Cinema of Paul Thomas Anderson, American Apocrypha, which we talk about along with his article, I Can Whistle With That, What the Stories of 2018 Show Us About Responding to Despair, which tries to grapple with our current anxieties and feelings of despair and apocalypse and how that filters into the movies and TV that we watch. Here's the rest of our conversation. The, the book that you're writing now uh, is The Cinema of Paul Thomas Anderson, American Apocrypha, you know, the other one of the other notable Andersons out there. So what I know I had Adam Nayman on the show about a year ago when his book came out. And uh my first guess was, I don't know, is is he like your nemesis, the other guy who wrote the big uh, Paul Thomas Anderson book?
1: He absolutely isn't. Uh we we had a phone call uh when I was at the very beginning of my process because his book was still a few months out, and uh I asked for an advanced copy so that I could start using it as a source in my book as i as i very greedily do uh adam wrote an incredible uh work of of criticism that is providing me with with some really uh essential uh backup to my own work um and and he's just such a lovely uh guy as as comes through on that interview which i did listen to um and he was very kind and and uh giving to me on that call so Far, far from it, except in that he wrote a really terrific book that uh, I did feel I was living in the shadow of because um, my book was not supposed to include licorice pizza. Uh, My proposal was submitted and approved before we knew what this ninth movie was. And so the idea was that I was I was really going to be doing very much what Adam did, which is is cover the first eight movies. And we uh, Columbia University Press, uh, who I am working with on this book. Uh, suggested that we hold off by a few months and and make it a uh, overview of nine movies with sort of up to the moment licorice pizza content, rather than than try to go up <laughs> against Adams' uh, objectively just masterful uh, uh, work of of both criticism and and just art. It's a it's a coffee table book that is you know pretty unimpeachable.
0: Well, it, it sounds like that was the right move as well because you you call the licorice pizza his pandemic movie, and for us trying to make sense of our moment, it seems like we we are going to need some some books, some analysis, and some movies that help us sort of uh, you know react to the world that we're living in now as opposed to the world before. Not to say that Adam's book isn't still worth reading, absolutely. But so I mean, talk to me a little oh, bit it about very that. Very much is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what do you, what do you mean when you say licorice yeah. pizza? His latest movie is his pandemic movie.
1: So licorice pizza was, was written before the uh, pandemic. um, And so it was not sort of designed as a, a movie that can be made in a bubble as some other sort of uh, smaller movies that we saw beginning with Sundance a year ago uh, were very much like, let's just grab a camera and make a movie kind of things. Licorice pizza has a certain feeling of that because it is a movie that is cast almost entirely with Paul Thomas Anderson's uh, friends and family, with the exception of Bradley Cooper, Sean Penn, Tom Waits, uh, John Michael Higgins, regrettably in a role that is the only thing that is keeping this movie back from being a masterpiece in my mind. And we can either talk about that or not. Uh, The movie is not going to be available uh, internationally and nationally until uh, December 25th, I think. Um, But it's, it, it is a movie that is, uh, as I say, it, it's about young people. Uh, almost all of the characters are played by just Anderson's kids and his kids' friends and the kids of his friends, which I think is is probably a major factor in how they got through this production without any significant health incident um, is there is is a clear um, sort of pact of trust to, to the people on stage, or not on stage, but on screen rather, and Anderson uh, has been doing a lot. This was a movie that, that was really presented to us in secrecy. Uh, you don't see this kind of thing outside of the new Matrix movie where they were really being cagey with it. And, and there was some question of what is he doing here? And the answer is that he made a movie starring his late best friend, Philip Seymour Hoffman's uh, son, Cooper, who's all of 16 years old. And he's just feeling defensive of the kid. And all of his own kids and his friends' kids, et cetera. I think he's been so cagey with this movie, not because there's incredible secrets, but because he is so sensitive to what a precious sort of of thing this is that was crafted in the bubble of this pandemic, and thus has this this really raw, at least to me, uh, perceptible heart of just affection in every frame because every person. That you're seeing on screen is it's someone that the director loves deeply, and he's been talking on this press tour about how he's increasingly needs to work that way. So I think you're, I think we're going to see more movies uh, with a feel like this, just based on the director's interests uh, going forward. And if it's going to be anything like this, I I can't wait because this is a this is a heck of a thing.
0: If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Ethan Warren about our current cultural anxieties and the way they permeate our entertainment. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. It seems to me that uh, perhaps the central tension in his career has been control freak who wants to have you know a Kubrickian. Uh, touch on every element of everything, and then the the Altman sort of impulse to explore, see what happens, capture you know put all the the elements together, and then capture it as it happens and find it in the moment. And it seems like he's moving more toward that Altman style as of late. I mean, I know everyone says the early ones are really Altman like, and I can kind of see it in form. Uh, and if you listen to my t- conversation with Adam Name, and I, I'm a huge Altman fan, so I, I like that. But it's it seems like. Even from the early ones, if he was maybe doing things that structurally looked a little bit like shortcuts or whatever, I don't know that he was experimental at all in the same way Altman is on, was on set. And it seems like, uh, you know, the in some ways this is also going from just a a technique to being sometimes the text of the movies themselves, like Phantom Thread seems like a movie kind of about some of these tensions, then he's trying to work through that and maybe satirize it a little bit. But so, I mean, do you see him making a shift from uh, trying to be, you know, the Kubrickian guy who made something like There Will Be Blood and the Master to something new now?
1: Well, uh, I think Kubrick and and Altman are kind of one of the most productive pairings to bring up when you're talking about him. And they are two of his most significant uh, influences. And Kubrick is someone who he met actually in 1999 uh, on the set of Eyes Wide Shut or maybe in 98, uh, depending on the the production details. Um, and, and Kubrick had a big influence on him because uh, Anderson was able to recognize just how small Kubrick's operation was and how few, uh, crew members he was using. And he said to, to Kubrick, uh, you know, this is amazing. You, you have so few people working with you. And, and Kubrick goes, why, how many do you need? And Anderson has talked since about like, he just got cut off at the knees by that remark. And he felt like such a Hollywood uh, shithead because he, was equating sort of size of operation with significance of the work and he realized that I think we are still seeing this the the fewer people you work with the more control you ultimately have and so he's now serving as his own cinematographer uh, his his uh, most significant collaborator Robert Ellswit they seem to be on the out for good um and he's he's just tightening the wagons progressively which is a very Kubrickian urge, and he's very private. He, he has a very low profile publicly. Um, he is uh, not married, but in a long-term relationship with uh, Maya Rudolph, the uh, comedian and actress. And they don't work together very often. And he was asked about that in a recent interview. And he said, there was some, some really cheesy, lovely line about our greatest production is the one you aren't seeing. And so that's how he's living his life at this point, which is is very close to the sort of Kubrickian self-imposed exile. But this is a movie that is more and more, he is is being willing to, as he said of Altman, uh, be rough and spit shine it. Uh, he wrote the the foreword to the book Altman on Altman. And he said that that's what attracts him to Altman is, is that these movies were made by hands that were not too careful or not too precious, I think is his line. <laughs> And and licorice pizza feels like that, and inherent vice does, and even phantom thread. Um, I think he in his last three movies has become less and less precious, and and so then there's I think the other two significant uh, influences on him. I think Kubrick and Altman is one great pairing, and the other one is Jonathan Demme and Robert Downey Sr., who are two of his other mentors. Who I think there's another great great productive tension between, and this movie is is dedicated to Downey, so.
0: Robert Downey Sr. His movies are just insane. (laughs) Like they're they're so out there.
1: They sure are.
0: They're so chaotic. Uh, They're they're fun in a way where I I'm watching something like Putney Swop. You sort of just. Like you're not necessarily watching a thing. You're like I got to figure out what's going on here. You're sort of just enjoying the ride. Um So that strikes me as I can see Paul Thomas Anderson having fun with that, but it seems very different from his operation, right? So I mean, where do you see Robert Downey Sr. fitting in there?
1: Robert Downey Sr., as you say, he was a um, he's a provocateur. He's the kind of guy that the term provocateur was invented for. Was sort of one of the kings of the underground uh, midnight movie scene in the '60s and '70s, doing these social satires that often felt like they were motivated more by uh, you know marijuana and cocaine than by any screenwriting principles. Uh, And and that's the kind of thing that really attracts Anderson. I think Anderson has this very provocative, very transgressive urge in him that he that that is also kind of. Uh, at war with um, a more traditionalist impulse. His movies tend to end by roughly upholding the status quo in some way with the exception of There Will Be Blood which ends with one of the most significant annihilations in, uh, in movie history. Uh, and Licorice Pizza I think moves away from this a little bit but, but at the end of the day for all that his characters have gone through it it often lands back at a sort of patriarchal standard being re-upheld. And so his movies are not that transgressive, but he loves Downey and he is often putting little references into the movies like, uh, boogie nights has the, the, uh, you know, the classic, uh, sequence with Alfred Molina, uh, the the drug deal gone wrong with this sort of maniac in the hills of the valley. And, and Molina's character has a, a sort of houseboy. I don't know if that's an appropriate term, but, uh, it's the kind of thing that Anderson would probably have said in the screenplay, uh, who's firing off, uh, Firecrackers in the background of the scene—that's a direct lift from Putney Swope. And so he puts in these little references, but I, I feel like he struggles to kind of go all the way uh, in terms of of really proposing a transgressive worldview, which is what uh, you know, really Altman and Downey and and even Demi, in in some cases, were proposing more radical sort of reevaluations of society, which I don't think Anderson is except maybe arguably in licorice pizza, uh, is, is really interested in pushing for.
0: Well, I, I look forward to reading this book uh, and learning more about your take specifically. When does it come out?
1: The goal is that it should be on shelves, uh, you know, knock on wood and knock on supply chain issues. The hope is that it will be available for uh, holiday shopping 2022. Nice. Okay. Well, we'll
0: be sure to plug that. Before I do let you go, though, I want to talk about one more movie that seems to fit all of these themes, which is Don't Look Up, the new uh, Adam McKay movie, which
1: <laughs> certainly talking about despair. I, I, have, a, oh, I have a personal grudge about that movie that that I can tell you about, but please go on.
0: Well, yeah, just to set it up a little bit, and I'm I'm excited to hear your your grudge, but it's a movie, uh, Adam McKay is doing an allegory about climate change. Uh, It's about some low-level astronomers who know that there's some kind of apocalyptic event with an asteroid that will hit earth and they want the world to know about it. They want the government to do something about it and nobody will. And so they take it on themselves to do some kind of tour. And it looks like it's trying to tap into like a network or Dr. Strangelove type of frequency. I have not had a chance to see it yet, but definitely in terms of like talking about despair and reacting to it, I am curious to get your take. So what's your grudge?
1: Well, my, my grudge is very petty. Uh, it, my, my brother-in-law, the, the movie was shot here in Boston. Uh, and so I'm excited to see it uh, on that level, if nothing else. Um, my my wife's brother uh, is an actor and he uh, was, was cast as a, a cop in Don't Look Up. And he arrived on set and uh, Adam McKay took one look at him and said, uh, you're too tall, go home. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so he was cut from the movie. I don't know if it was actually Adam McKay personally, but I'm going to say it was for the sake of the story. Um, Adam McKay is a is is a fascinating case. I haven't seen the movie yet either. Netflix has not given us that one. Um, as critics, um, I'm a member of of the Boston Society of Film Critics, and Netflix has been really working overtime to buy our favor, uh, except when it comes to actually giving us copies of the movies that are <laughs> that are forthcoming, like The Power of the Dog. And and don't look up. Uh, so I'm looking forward to it. I think it's really interesting to see how overtly political Adam McKay has gotten, and how, for me, less politically impactful they have they have become. I think Vice, uh, the Dick Cheney biopic, is a less interesting commentary on the Bush era than Step Brothers is. Uh, I think Step Brothers is much more sort of perceptive and impactful on a on a visceral sort of gut level than anything overt that he's trying to say with vice which is a movie I, I don't think works i hope don't look up works uh i don't think the big short really works either i think he did his best work with will farrell and as, as we've just learned that is a fundamental uh split that they they are now uh on the other side of so I don't have the highest hopes
0: (laughs) yeah I mean he's a guy I root for I think the first Anchorman captures so much of our ugliness of our culture in such a palatable funny way Uh, that's a movie I I agree absolutely yeah yeah and you know I, I I'm excited I like the concept of don't look up I you know I'm rooting for it uh, I, I think uh, I'm glad to see a movie just like we sort of talked about with first reformed I, I'm excited to see movies try to grapple with reality in the way that we are trying to live in it. Uh, I think that there's room for that in multiple ways. I don't know that it always needs to be completely on the nose <laughs> kind of like you just mentioned with Vice. But, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting, and sometimes it feels like with climate change in particular that it's just so disturbing and overwhelmingly scary and depressing that a lot of filmmakers don't want to go there, which I know – I think Adam McKay, I would read some interview, he said something like it felt like fiddling while Rome burns to some extent to not go there, and so that's what pushed him to do it. But I mean, I don't know. Do you, I mean, how much do you feel? Let's let's go back to the the dark pit that we started in. How much do you feel despair now about uh, the the direction the world is heading?
1: Uh, well, my God, I have three kids, uh, all five years old and under, so I kind of have no choice but to say that uh, that good things are coming. Um, <laughs> Here, here is what I have taken some comfort in because I am often gripped by despair. It's why I lean towards these things, and it's why I look in so much media uh, for for ways that we can process these things. Um, I say I say that in a very sort of deadpan way. I'm often gripped by despair because it's just kind of something that we we all have to live with if if we're I think looking good and hard at some of the facts around us. So what I have have found myself clinging to, I am not a religious person, but I have uh, religious friends uh, who I I really uh, value their their insights on things like the definition of the word apocalypse, uh, and also this has actually come into my life through my work on Paul Thomas Anderson because, uh, there is there is a term uh, called the Pauline apocalypse, which I discovered through one. Uh, article on on Anderson's Magnolia, which ends with frogs raining from the sky. And they say, this is a movie that is about the Pauline apocalypse, which is not an apocalypse that ends with the world uh, consumed by fire and all of humanity erased. It is a definition of apocalypse that refers just to there being some unmistakable physical breach in the world that has forced the formulations of new uh, ways of life and of new kinds of communities. And, you know, when we make post-apocalyptic movies, Station Eleven, uh, an HBO series that's coming out this month based on uh, an incredible novel, it's a very hopeful post-apocalyptic novel because it is taking that that version of the word apocalypse, which is, yes, society has fallen and society has has. Struggled towards some new kind of of um, foothold, and and so it's it's hard to feel hopeful because to feel hopeful almost means to deny the significance of some of the things like the the restrictions in um in healthcare and and access to to healthcare for women that we're seeing uh, really being moved towards this week. I, I my wife is is in uh, women's healthcare, so I, you can probably hear the emotion in my voice. Uh, I need to feel hope because I don't have a choice and it is hard sometimes. And I do look to media, which uh, I also have a theory about tear jerkers. I often go back to my favorite tear jerkers because I think that they they provide a sense of hope uh, by showing us media can show us sort of the journey through the darkness and the journey out the other side. First reform does not take us out the <laughs> other side. Joe Parra Talks With You does, I believe. Um, to really bring it all back around. And and the media that most impacts me uh, says, look at this. This is how bad it can get. And this is maybe how you're going to find your way through. So... Maybe somewhere in there is is the answer you were looking for. I sure hope so. <laughs> I think so. I think you, you. It's hard out
0: there. You wrapped it all up way better than I probably would have if you hadn't had that great of an answer. So I appreciate you being on the show. Before I let you go, uh, where can people find all of the updates on your book, and then your writing for Bright Wall Dark Room, or wherever else you have things going on?
1: Uh well, you you can uh, find me on Twitter at uh, Ethan underscore Warren underscore. Uh, I say that I am I am fighting the daily losing battle not to tweet because tweeting rarely leads to any good things for anyone. Uh, but I am on there. Uh, Bright Brightwall Dark Room uh, is uh, an independent uh, online ad free film journal uh, that is entirely subscriber funded, and we are just a labor of love. Uh, I say just as though that is not sort of the most important thing any of us can be <laughs> in this uh, in this tough world is we are a labor of love providing, uh, long form, uh, film criticism, uh, largely sort of positive are we don't, we're not the home for hot takes and takedowns. Um, we're looking for the, as I just said, the intersection basically of, as we call it, uh, you know, movies and TV and the business of being alive. So you can visit us at brightwalldarkroom.com. I am just have been a senior editor there for the past few years, have transitioned to editor at large as I do work on this book, uh, which, is called the cinema Paul thomas anderson american apocrypha uh under contract with columbia university press as part of their director's cut theories um and i have written a lot of other things i love to write and i can't seem to stop doing it so uh ethan uh you can find a lot of other uh stuff there I've, I've written and directed a movie too i you know that's out there you can find some info on, on the site uh I, I just love making stuff, and I, I, I lose track of it all sometimes. So find, find more info there. Well,
0: yeah, thank you for that, and thank you for talking to me today. I had a great time, and I really appreciate you taking the time to
1: talk to me. As did I. Thank you so much. This was, uh, this was a lot of fun to talk about despair for an hour. <laughs> Riverside Chats
0: is a production of KIOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowitz. Remember, you can find the backlog of all of these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening.
2: I'm Tom Noblock.